Amen. All right, we are going to be in the book of Joel. I know that's tops on everybody's list, and so, uh, if, but in case you just don't know where Joel is, he is at the end of the Old Testament. Isaiah is a pretty big book, so if you find that one and turn right, you'll hit Jeremiah. He's also kind of big. Then Ezekiel, he's big. Then they get smaller. Uh, you'll hit Daniel. You'll hit Hosea, which we looked at the last time I was up here. And then you'll hit Joel. If you hit Amos or anybody else, turn back to the left. And we're continuing our look at the, uh, at the minor prophets. And these are these, these, the reason they're called minor is not because they weren't important, but because their books are short. All right? So these are, um, we can consider these short stories. And the last time we looked at Hosea. All right? Uh, and Hosea, if you remember, is about a whore and her husband. And we are the whore, and God is our husband. All right, that's Hosea. And Joel, so if that's, about, if that's Hosea, Joel's story then is about repentance and renewal. And we're going to do this a little bit differently because I'm covering a whole book. I won't read to you the whole book. But rather than read a passage and then preach through that passage, I'm going to kind of read portions as we go. So... Uh, as we look at Joel, let's pray and ask God to bless his word and our hearing. Father in heaven, we ask just that. Lord, you have provided Joel, uh, a book we seldom read, a book we seldom go to, and a book maybe even that's hard for us to understand. And Lord, we pray um, because you've given it to us. For our instruction, it's part of your word. You spoke through Joel, and you're speaking now to us through him. And so, God, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would bless our hearing of it, that its preaching would be true and powerful. And, Lord, just as as Joel calls for, that we would be cut to the heart. Uh, Father, that we would be impacted at the deepest level. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus in Joel and be renewed and transformed. And we ask it in his name. Amen. All right. Have you ever, uh, have you ever been to or been in a natural disaster? So hurricane, tornado, right? Have you ever either experienced that yourself or maybe you were on a mission trip and you visited a place that had been hit by a natural disaster. Uh, If you have, you realize that there is nothing that sobers you up like devastation, right? At, At seeing everything that was normal, the whole natural order, just completely done away with. Um, When I remember when when Hurricane Katrina hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast, I was living in Meridian at the time, which is a few hours north. That's in Mississippi. Um, And after the hurricane had hit and then hit us, uh, in the weeks and months after that, we would travel down to Biloxi and then to Bay St. Louis, which are on the the coast, to do hurricane relief work. Uh, and And it was the most bizarre thing, right? Now, we had some trees down and some houses damaged in Meridian, but as you, 
in, and this is the case of a hurricane, as you drove further south, the damage increased, right? You could see as you traced backwards the path of the storm, um, you were going into its intensity. And so the further south we got, there were more and more piles of debris, piles of trees just off to the side of the interstate that had been cleared out of the way, and you saw just sticking out of the ground like uneven toothpicks, the stumps that had been left behind. And that happened more and more the closer we got until we finally got to a place where it was just gone, right? And we, we drove in. You would drive into these towns that the hurricane had directly hit, and in place of a house or a building, you would just see a foundation. And next to that foundation or maybe on that foundation, piles of sheetrock and rubble and stone and wood, right? What, what used to be somebody's home, um, now, just, now just a pile, right? Um, and where there were trees left standing, they were all dead because salt water had flooded in and poisoned their roots. And so there was, nowhere that, there was nowhere you could look, and this is true of a hurricane, uh, there is nowhere you could look that devastation wasn't present. And what was probably the most, the, the, the eeriest thing was when you got out of the car was the silence. Right? Have you, have you ever been somewhere, anywhere in the south, where you didn't hear the crickets making noise? Right, you can go outside right now and something is going to be making noise. But it, right after the storm, quiet. And it has, this, it has this sobering effect. And you realize that what used to be normal, right? there, there used to be happiness here. But not anymore. And if, you were, and if you were in the car with a van of students, as I was, and maybe you're telling stories and you're laughing as you go down, as you, as you pull into the city, where you're, where, as we pulled into the city where we're going to stay, everybody just stops because they're just, they're just awestruck at the havoc around them, Right? at seeing the I-10 bridge torn into pieces and just thrown into the ocean, right? Devastation has that effect. And that's, and that's where Joel begins. That's where Joel starts, right? Look in, if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So whatever's happened where Joel is near Jerusalem, it's so massive that you're telling the generations to come. And here's what he says in verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust 
has eaten. So what's happened, and this was common, it's not so much common here, but common in the Middle East, right, is a locust plague has descended on, on Jerusalem and on the area surrounding it and has destroyed everything. All the crops are gone. Uh, all of the hard work, wasted. Okay? And it's so devastating, right, it looks like successive waves of locusts have just come through. And so if one group left this standing, the next group ate that. And if there was something left, the next group ate that. And then last of all, this fourth group took it all out. And as he goes through chapter 1, he kind of recounts the scene for you, right, of, of animals wandering around. There's, that, there's a drought happens as well, right? So that compounds the problem. Animals are wandering, wandering around in the fields looking for drink, looking for food. They're starving to death, right? Um, there's nothing for the people to bring to the offerings of the temple. There's nothing for people to eat. There's nothing for people to worship with. Jerusalem has been devastated by this plague, right, by these locusts. And so, um, this is, and this is, why, this is why prophets are not fun people to have at parties, okay? Um, because they see God has given them a vision beyond what most other people see, right? Um, everybody can see the cracked earth. They can see the stubble of what used to be their grain, right? They can see the, the, the charred grapevines, okay, that used to produce wine. Um, they can see all of that. Joel sees all of that and says, this is actually, there's actually more to come. This is, this is just a wake-up call, Right? Um, the locust plague is a metaphor for God's judgment that's coming in what he calls the day of the Lord, right? You see it in, uh, let's see, verse 15 of chapter 1. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And so actually this is our first point. didn't tell you that, right? Our sin brings devastation and judgment. Okay, And that's what's happened in Jerusalem. And so what Joel says is he goes from this locust plague to a prophecy about the coming judgment day. And what, what you see happening is he actually begins to blend these two things together. And so read with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Sorry, I keep... I was having no problems with my nose until I stepped up here and was on a mic. All right. Joel says this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. 
Right? So Joel starts painting this picture of this unstoppable army. And they, and they start on the mountains. Right? So he's, from the perspective of somebody on the walls of Jerusalem, he's looking out and he sees this army approaching. And they're so vast that they just, there's this big black horde. Okay? There's so many of them, they, they blot out the sky. And as they come, you can see destruction coming with them. Right? The land looks like Eden before they get there, but then behind them it's a wasteland. And as chapter 2 goes, you see them getting closer and closer. They overwhelm the defenses. They start scaling the walls of the city. And then finally they're climbing in your window. Right? Um, It's terrifying. And what's most terrifying is this. Verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The most terrifying thing about this army is that it belongs to the Lord. It's God's, this army is God's judgment. Okay? So God, that's what, that's what verse 11 is telling us. God is in control of this army that will come against his people. God is the one who's bringing judgment. And Joel says that to unsettle the people he's talking to, and that should unsettle us. Right? That judgment is not just kind of some third-party distant thing, but it actually the Lord himself, he's the one who's bringing it. He's the one in control of this army. And so what, what, what God is doing is he is using this disaster, this locust plague, to, as a wake-up call. Right? He is waking his people up uh, to a different reality because... Just like I was talking about with Katrina, nothing, nothing upsets your complacency like a natural disaster. Right? Nothing upsets your complacency like a disaster. So, right, we, we get in a routine, kind of plugging along, trusting that, that tomorrow is going to be the same as today. And what happens is, right, sin and idolatry kind of begin this, this little slow and subtle creep. And what happens is eventually is we become complacent and secure in being secure, right? Uh, we, we, we become trusting in things that, that don't deserve our trust until all of a sudden the locusts come or an F5 tornado touches down and it's taken away, right? God is waking his people up. So... Let's pause right here and ask this question. This is a, this is a this is a painful question, but I think I think Joel is asking it, uh, and I think we need to ask it, right? Because because what you see in Joel and what you see on the screen behind me is this progression. Our sin brings devastation and judgment. God's kindness leads us to repentance, and on the other side of repentance is restoration and healing. But in order to get there, we've got to start here. We've got to hear the wake-up call. So, so what is the reality that God is waking you up to? 
Where, where in your life have you seen sin's consequences played out in a devastating way? And maybe not in a natural disaster. Uh, in fact, please don't hear me saying that every natural disaster is a judgment from God on, an, on the nation for its sins or on particular people. Don't, I, I won't spend a lot of time there. If you have questions about that or you differ with that, then let's talk afterwards. But... Um, the reality of Scripture is that sin has consequences. And God, God brings those consequences to bear to judge our sin. He does it in limited fashion right here, like with a locust plague. But it reminds us that there is an ultimate judgment coming, and that should shake us up. So what reality is God waking you up to or has God waken you up to? Where, where are the locusts in your life? Where, where are you seeing God's judgment in the consequences of your sin taking place? And, and in, at least in Joel's case, he doesn't get very specific. Unlike other prophets, Joel doesn't tell us what, what the sins are. Okay? Uh, but I think we know that sin is the problem because of what he calls the people to. And that's the next that's the next point, right? God is waking people up to return to him. Look at Joel 2, starting in verse 12. And so Joel, Joel in 2 is given this vision of this army approaching, and, and the, the conclusion is, how fearful is the day of the Lord? Who can endure it? So there the people are scared, and then Joel says this in verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and tear your hearts, rend your hearts, and not your garments. Right? So Joel calls for all-out repentance. And so right here where it says, uh, return to me with all your heart, that word return is often translated repent. And that tell, so that tells you what what, that gives you an idea of what repentance looks like. Repentance is more than, I'm sorry. Repentance is actually a turning of the heart away from sin and to the Lord. And Joel says, right, tear your hearts and not your garments. So if you were in Joel's time, if you were in Joel's society, uh, a way that you show your sorrow is by tearing your cloak, all right? So if a guy's in the temple and he rips his cloak, it was meant to be a sign of mourning or of repenting or of grieving, all right? But what Joel says is, that's not enough. Like, don't go through the motions. You can rip your cloak all day long. What you need to rip is your heart. I want your heart to be torn in two over your sin. And then that produces weeping. That produces fasting. That produces mourning. Right? And so, Isaiah 29, 13, was probably true of them, and I bet it's true of you and me. Isaiah says this, or God says this through Isaiah, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
Right, what the scriptures say again and again is that we can, we can play the game, right? We can rend our garments. We can, make, we can make little moral, religious adjustments and think that that settles the issue. But the problem with those things is that they don't touch the heart. And what Joel is calling for is an, is an all-out heart repentance, a heart return, right? Um, let me illustrate it this way. Jesus, Jesus met two different men. We met lots of different people, but let's illustrate it with two men. Um, there, was a, there was this guy, a very earnest young man. He, he ran up to Jesus, and he knelt before him, and he said, Good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You may be familiar with this story. And Jesus responds to him uh, with some commandments, right? He says... Oh, well, you know, you know the commandments. Love the Lord your God. Like he actually, he uses, he only lists a few of them, okay? So he lists off these commandments, and here's what the guy says. Oh, these I've kept from my youth, right? Okay, good, I've done that. Anything else? Right? So that shows you right there, maybe, maybe the law has not quite touched his heart. And here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus, Jesus, being God, knows exactly where this guy's heart is. And so it's like he, he takes his finger and he, and he, puts, his, and he puts it on the, the issue, right? He puts his finger right on this man's idol. He says, okay, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You know how that guy responds? He walks away. The gospel say he walks away sad because he was very wealthy. See, that guy thought he was righteous. And so when it came to the matter of giving up his idols to turn to the Lord, he was incapable. That man did not repent, right? Because for him, repentance would have looked like selling his goods and giving them to the poor. All right, so that's what repentance doesn't look like. That guy, that guy was looking for the moral adjustment. He was saying, man, okay, I'm doing pretty good, right? I don't, I'm not angry at anybody. I've honored my parents. I haven't committed adultery. Great. All right, Jesus, what else can I do to make sure everything's good? And Jesus gives him a command he cannot follow. And instead of repent, he walks away. And that's the problem with thinking we just, we just, if we just make a little tweak, it's going to be all good. All right? So there's another man whom Jesus meets. His name is Zacchaeus. You may be familiar with Zacchaeus' story, right? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. What he does for a living is extort money from other people, right? So he takes the tax necessary for the Roman government, and then on top of that he takes more for himself. Right, he takes his cut, all right, and he is uh, he is not penalized for doing that. So Zacchaeus is a very wealthy man, and probably a very lonely man. Not many people want to be Zacchaeus's friend. So Jesus comes to Zacchaeus's city, and you probably know, right? Zacchaeus is in a tree watching, and Jesus comes up to the tree and says, "Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house and spend time with you." And Zacchaeus is probably like, 
You what? You want to do what? You want to come to my house? Nobody comes to my house. So Zacchaeus comes to, I mean, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house, and after a few hours spent with Jesus, Zacchaeus says this, right? Um, He says, Lord, whatever I have stolen, I will return and pay back fourfold. Now, there's a man who has met Jesus and repented, right? There's a man whose heart was changed by meeting Jesus. Because he didn't just say, oh, shucks, I'm sorry that I've stolen from some folks. He says, Lord, whatever I've stolen, I give back. And on top of that, I'll repay. All right, so that's, that's the difference in sham fake repentance and real heart repentance, right? That's, the, that's, that's heart-tearing repentance right there. The question is, how is that possible? Right? How is that kind of sorrow over sin possible? My contention is that God's grace makes real repentance possible. Go to Joel 2.13. He says, again, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Right? Some, some, your Bible may translate steadfast love as covenant faithfulness or loyal love. Um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I highly recommend, right? it takes that word and it, it calls us God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. That's the kind of love that drives you to repentance. Right? If you don't know God's character, if you don't know that God is a God of mercy, then you will be unable to really repent because you don't know if you'll be accepted. Right? You don't know if He'll hear you. You don't know if He'll forgive you. But right here in Joel, he says, return to the Lord because He is gracious, because He is merciful. Because he is steadfast love. And if we don't know that character, then we'll have a hard time repenting. In fact, well, we'll get to that in a second. First, let's look at the result of repentance, right? The Lord's, mer- the Lord's mercy restores and renews his repentant people. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. The people repent, they gather to the temple, and they, they mourn and they weep. And here's what it says. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now, that'll motivate repentance and obedience right there. Right? Can you see the difference? All right, so when I, when I sit down with people, um, there's something about when you sit down with a, with a pastor, uh, I don't know why, like in the first time conversations, people will, people will say, man, I know I'm not living right. It's like, okay. 
Tell me more. Um, and here's, and, but here's what, here's what people will say. They will say, you know, I just, I know I need to get back in church. And so I, yeah, probably. But why? Why? I, I probably need to read my Bible more. Yeah, that's probably true. Why? You know, that's what, that's the right thing to do. Well, that'll get you up in the morning. The right thing to do. All right? Versus this. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Can you see the difference between those two motivations? This one will, this one will run out of gas until something more convenient comes along. This one is always giving, always drawing you back in, always wooing you with its love, right? That's the kind of God who calls to repentance. That's the kind of God who grants repentance, right? When Jesus is talking with the the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, uh, Nicodemus thinks he's kind of got some things together, and so he's... He, he praises Jesus for speaking true things, and Jesus kind of gives him a backhand across the face with this. He says, I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In, in essence, what Jesus, in, in the rest of their conversation, Jesus is saying, you must, have, you must be born again to have life. Uh, you must be born again to repent. So not only does God's grace welcome repentance, but God's grace actually gives repentance. God's grace gives what it asks. Um, let's keep reading in Joel. Right, He restores everything. All of their work, uh, all, all of the grain, the wine, the oil, the water comes back. The animals have uh, food to eat. Water to drink, the trees are bearing fruit. But don't, don't miss this precious promise in Joel 2.25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. How good is God's grace? He actually promises to replace. He doesn't just give them crops back, but he, he actually replaces the years that were taken away. Right? So think, think, about, think about the frustration that the consequences of your sin cause. Okay? Um, maybe it's wasted time. Wasted relationships. Right? When you, when you see the burnt over ground and you say, God, why? Why did I do that? And God comes and he says, I will restore what the, the years that the locust has eaten. So the hard work, all that hard work that you thought was fruitless, I'll restore that. All that time you thought you wasted in the field, to watch it disappear in front of your face, I'll restore that. God restores what he has removed. And what that means is 
God restores, that, that not only does he grant repentance, but he actually restores what our sin has destroyed. But there's one, there's one more promise I want to look at. Not only does the Lord's mercy restore, but it also renews. Chapter 2, verse 28. This may sound familiar to you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. All right. So in Joel's day, only certain people received the spirit for a certain task. And usually these were prophets or the king or maybe the priest and occasionally somebody like us. But by and large, the spirit was reserved for certain people. And yet God says a day is coming and so that means that only certain people had knew the presence of the Lord that intimately. But Joel says, there's a day coming when all of my people will have the Spirit. When I will pour out my, my Spirit on all who call on my name. Right? Because later on he says, all who call on the Lord shall be saved. Those people will know me intimately. And it will change the way you talk. It will change the way you dream. It will change what you see. Right? So the Lord not only restores after devastation, but he even renews. Right? He gives us what they didn't have. Because this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, if, you remember, if you're familiar with the story, right? The Spirit is poured out on... 120 disciples, and they start speaking in tongues, and they're telling about the wonderful things God has done. And when the people around them hear this, they say, what in the world is going on? Are these men drunk? And Peter, referred, he says, no, 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 this is what Joel was talking about. When he said, my spirit would be poured out on all flesh, not just men, but women, not just old, but young, not just the wealthy, but the slaves. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord who is saved, they will receive the Spirit. And it's not so much about prophecy, though that's there. It's about the fact that now God dwells in the midst of his people, renewing us from the inside out. All right, so let's, let's go back through the progression. Our sin brings devastation and judgment. God's kindness leads us into repentance so that we turn from that sin. And on the other side of that repentance, God restores what we, what we lost through sin and renews us in the inward person, makes us new people. That's the gospel according to Joel. Okay? Let's close with this. Repentance and restoration are impossible without a Redeemer. Repentance and restoration are impossible without a Redeemer. Because those promises 
right? The promise to restore, the promise to renew, they only find their fulfillment in Jesus. Because, because who, did, who bore the devastation and judgment of God ultimately? Jesus did. That's how what you lose can be restored, right? Because if you're in Jesus, he takes your judgment, you receive his righteousness. And so that means that in Jesus Christ, there is glorious hope even after utter destruction. Even after everything else is, is cleared away, burned away, there is still hope. Joel goes through chapter 3 talking about the hope that is to come. Actually, he puts them side by side. He talks about how he's going to judge all the nations and he's going to save his repentant people. And so that's Joel's message to us. Your sin, my sin, will devastate my life. And if I don't see it now in the wake-up calls, I will see it on Judgment Day. I will see it on the day of the Lord. But something else will happen on the day of the Lord. That those who are in Christ Jesus will be saved. Right? Joel chapter 2, verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Revelation borrows its language from here. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So judgment is coming. And your hope, your only hope and my only hope is in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Only, only in Jesus do we receive the repentance and restoration necessary to survive. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word to Joel, thousands of years ago, yet still it speaks, it speaks of the salvation that you offer, salvation that will keep us from becoming judgment, that will restore to us the years the locusts have eaten and that will renew us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy. God, in your kindness, lead us to repentance. Lead us to turn from that sin that has caused us so much pain and so much trouble and turn to you where we can find hope and life eternal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.